Contraception and the Natural Law, a conference by Dr. Brian McCall, given on November 11th, 2018, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, at the Fatima Center's Army of Advocates Conference on Borrowed Time, Defending Catholic Teaching on Marriage and the Family. In this talk, Dr. McCall also addresses Pope Paul VI's encyclical Humanae Vitae and the concept popularly known as NFP, or Natural Family Planning. So, as Kevin said, I, I've written for Catholic Family News for many years. I knew the longtime editor-in-chief, John Denari, for, for many years. He and I both, although we're different ages, grew up here in Philadelphia. He unfortunately went to Father Judge High School. I went to Monsignor Bonner, so I forgave him for that. Um, and actually, I, as I said, we we both grew up here. I grew up here and taught for a couple of years at Holy Ghost Prep before I went to law school. I found out one of the Holy Ghost Prep alumnus is here, and it's nice to come home to be back here. Just speaks all of you. But if you're not familiar with Catholic Family News, the table, the Fatima Center table, has several editions, including this month's edition out there, which is on the Synod which has an article by Chris Ferrara, front page, talking about that document in more detail that he discussed yesterday about the synod that uh, Francis released in September. So it's a monthly newspaper. It comes out every month. You can subscribe either to have it arrive in your home or as of this summer, we now have an e-edition. So you can read it immediately online as soon as it's published. Uh, you can subscribe to both or, or just one or the other. And then also, if you've enjoyed this weekend... Catholic Family News has an annual national conference every year. This year it will be May 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Chicago. And the theme this year, well, next year, 2019, will be 50 years of problems with the new Mass. And some of the people you've heard here today, uh, Christopher Ferrara, for example, will, will be there. You can see a list of all the speakers on uh, the Catholic Family News website. So if you've enjoyed this weekend, very similar format, time to visit, have meals with people, get to know some new people. Uh, from really all over the country, and then here are some very edifying, I hope, uh, conferences. So, as Kevin said, I, I have the uh, non-controversial topic of uh, contraception. Our Lady, when she appeared to the children, uh, part of her prophecy, her secret she gave them, is that Russia would spread her errors throughout the world. It's interesting, people of my parents' generation who were young people at the time of 1960, when they were expecting to hear the third part of the secret, much of what they thought about that meant that Russia was going to send her troops and her, there was going to be invasion with tanks. But Our Lady, she did talk about war. I mean, she predicted World War II, but she didn't say Russia would spread her tanks. She did do that in parts of the world, but she really focused more on her errors. And although it's not the topic of my conference, the, the Fatima Center and Catholic Family News have articles in prior conferences on the errors of Russia, and a central error of Russia is the spread of contraception and abortion. Fundamental to Marxist-Leninism, that that must be universal. And look at what's happened. 101 years ago, when Our Lady appeared in Portugal, it would be unfathomable to people that you could, one, just merely 100 years later, obtain contraceptions from a vending machine in a bathroom in a public train station which is, is, is common, that last week in one of the stories that was published when the administration, the Trump administration, was saying they were going to remove the contraceptive mandate that requires, forces employers and insurance companies to pay 100% for contraceptives. One of those stories says that 99% of women between ages 15 and 45, so childbearing ages, have used contraceptives at some point. And again, if you would take that... in you know, 1917 in the West, that'd probably be the opposite. Only 1% in 1917. So if you don't believe that the prophecies of Fatima have come and are coming true in our time, that's just an incredible example. 99%. Russia has spread her errors. And that's just the United States, but it's the same statistic throughout the world. So it's an incredibly important topic when we talk about marriage and the family to see how true our late prediction is. Despite their significant differences, a few of which we'll touch on today, the two encyclicals of the 20th century that deal with this topic, Caspi Canubi, Pius XI, and Humanae Vitae, uh, whose 50th anniversary is this year, uh, Paul VI, 
share an important point of agreement. They both conclude that the use of contraception is not merely contrary to the divine law, to the revealed divine law, but also the natural law. Cassidy Kinnubi 56. Our mouth proclaims anew any use whatsoever of marriage exercised in such a way that the act is deliberately frustrated in its natural purpose to generate life is an offense against the law of God and of nature. Humanivite describes its teaching as, quote, a teaching which is based on the natural law as illuminated and enriched by divine revelation. Now, this is not surprising, since the author of the divine and natural law is the same person, God himself. Therefore, the divine law would never permit what the natural law forbids and vice versa, because as St. Thomas taught truth is the same, because its origin is the same in God. And so the truth that God reveals through divine revelation and which we can learn through the use of our own reason, natural law, will always be the same. The church has always taught that she is not only the guardian of the divine law, but also of the natural law as well as the divine instituted authority to help us come to know the natural law. Now, I'm not a theologian, so we're not going to focus on the theological arguments, the scriptural arguments for the divine law as teaching against contraception. We're going to focus on the natural law. Now, why is that? Why is that important in our time? And an earlier time, that might have been enough, right, to know, okay, the church teaches under divine law, this is wrong. But in our time, we have to know these truths from natural law as well for several reasons. Normally, the natural law, although first in the order of being, so the natural law exists first, then particular law, so whether the law of our country or the law of the church, the specific laws of the church come about, are in the order of knowledge, we know these particular laws first. And that's how we come to know the natural law. So we know, okay, in Pennsylvania, it's against the law of the murder. We then come to learn that that's also against the natural law. But first, as in our knowledge, we learn the more particular. That is the normal way throughout centuries that we came to often know these truths. But first, our civil governments, in this country in 1954, with the case of Griswold v. Connecticut, abandoned this and made the civil law, which is supposed to be an instantiation or an enactment of principles of natural law, overturned the opposite. And now, sadly, in our time, ecclesiastical law and authorities are failing to do the same thing. So we can't now just rely on looking at particular law to know these truths because the church and the state are undermining these truths in their particular pronouncements. As the hierarchy of the church moves ever more towards silence about both the divine and natural law on the matter of contraception, or alternatively tries to confuse with ambiguous and erroneous teachings, we, to save our souls, have to look back to these truths and really reinforce the reasons for them so that we're not led astray. Secondly, we live in a society that is essentially atheist. Even if not, even people say, well, I believe in God, they're functionally atheist and secular, and live in a state of apostasy and neo-paganism. And contraception has effects on the natural level. In addition to being a grave sin, there's effects on the way our society functions or dysfunctions. And so we need to engage people on the natural level and to present them arguments, because this is harming our society. And we need to advance those arguments. And if we merely just say, well, the Bible says it, or divine revelation, they won't listen to it. I mean, well, you, we don't, I don't believe in that. And so because of the neo-pagan times in which we live, we have to be able to articulate, in addition to the reasons from divine law, on the natural level, on the natural law, why these things are wrong. Um, it's incredibly important. It's not surprising that as the theological position of the church has been obscured through the errors being taught in the last 50 years, that the philosophy, the natural law behind that also becomes obscure. Leo XIII taught in his encyclical on Thomism, Patris, philosophy and theology are related. Bad philosophy always goes with bad theology. Vatican II attempted to inject into the church a new theology, what Chris called yesterday viruses, and therefore it needed a new philosophy. This was inevitable, because they're connected. Again, theology and philosophy have to complement each other. This new natural law philosophy that's risen up since Vatican II came to fill the gap. 
So we have to distinguish what the church and the perennial philosophers, Aristotle, Aquinas, have taught about natural law from the fake natural law that's being distorted today. So we'll proceed first by giving an overview of classical natural law theory. What, what does it mean? Especially the two ideas that it is, it is demonstrable and hierarchical, which are denied by modern errors. Uh, we'll look at the nature of moral acts, and then marriage and the primary precepts of the natural law related to them, which will then be applied to the specific cases of contraception and then what I call artificial conception that are both identical, in a sense, extreme errors against the same, the same truth. So as to the overview of natural law, and here we have to really start at a very basic level uh, because of the times in which we live. In 500 years ago, we could have just gone right to the topic. But now we live in a time when people deny the most basic truths. So we have to really start at a very, very important basic level. As Father Dominique Bormeau has said in his book, A Hundred Years of Modernism, the errors of our time are unique in that they don't just deny specific truths, but they deny our very basic ability to know the truth itself. They deny the very basic truths of being. And that's what makes our times really so dangerous. So, natural law is premised on the idea, and this is the fundamental point we have to be able to articulate to people, that we can know what we ought to do, so what we should do, through a rational reflection upon our natural inclination. So by knowing what it is to be a human being, we can then know what we should and shouldn't do. As St. Thomas says, it is therefore evident that as regards the general principles whether of speculative or practical reason, and practical reason is the faculty of our intellect, how we know the natural law, truth or rectitude is the same for all and equally known by all. So because we share a common nature, because we all are human beings, we can equally come to know these truths. And how do we come to know them? Through their causes, as an Aristotle taught over 2,500, or almost 2,500 years ago. Now, the most important of these causes is what he called the final cause, that for the sake of which. So what causes something is its end. What is its purpose? What is it for? And we can know this by seeing what something is, what it should do, what its end ought to be. The fool's errand in the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment error was the search for the so-called answer to the naturalist fallacy, which originated in a philosophy that forgot about these causes. And again, you may hear this. If you start talking about it, people say, that's the naturalist fallacy. So what is their false objection? It's an error that says, well, you can't know what something ought to do. You can't know what's good simply by knowing what something is. And people have accepted this now for hundreds of years. It's like, well, just because that's a person, that doesn't mean I can't know anything about what it ought to do. There's no way we can know what we ought to do. Well, this is just... A trick. It's a false. And we can even, we will talk a little more philosophically, but even from the level of common sense, we know that this is not right. That we can know what things ought to be, what is good and what's not good, simply by knowing what something is. So we'll just do some real simple, basic examples to prove this. So I have in my pocket a watch. I take out my watch. And they would say, well, there's no way I can know what that should do from what it is. Well, obviously, it's a watch. It should keep time. That's not right. Just common sense. When I tell you it's a watch, you know what it should do. And if I say, oh, right now it says 2.30, you'd say, well, that's not a good watch. It's not keeping good time. But they say, you can't know that. And look how obvious that is. Just by telling you what it is, you know what it ought to do. Now, a watch is simpler than a human being, so it's a little simpler, but the principle is the same. A little more complex example. Right? If I say, this person is a plumber, well, what ought he do? Ought he be able to do it? Well, he ought to be able to repair and install plumbing. And if I say, well, this plumber came to my house and now none of the sinks will drain, the heat doesn't work, everything's clogged, you can immediately say, well, that's a bad plumber, or he did bad plumbing. It's obvious, right? It's very commonsensical. Once you know what something is, we know from what it is how to judge what it ought to do and what makes its actions good or bad. Right? A plumber that puts hot water to come out of the cold tap is not a good plumber. It's very, very obvious. 
So, again, these, think of these examples, because a lot of times people will say, well, just because somebody's married or because of the marital act, we don't know what it ought to do. That's not true. We couldn't live our life if that were really true, because we'd never know what to do with things. You'd walk up to a car and go, wow, I don't know what I ought to do with this. No way to know. Maybe I should use it uh, to be a paperweight. Yeah. No, it's silly. But this is what these people have been teaching for three and four hundred years. Now, we might disagree right, about the exact nature of the ought. Right? We, we may have some that's a little more difficult. Again, the more complex, how fast ought I drive this car. But still, we've proven the principle from common sense that we can know something about what things ought to do based on what they are. Now, natural law, under philosophy and jurisprudence, is rooted in the idea that we can come to know the norms of human action, behavior, what people ought to do, by knowing, in a large part, by identifying these causes, what we are tells us what we ought to do. So the first principle of the natural law is that good ought to be done. Man ought to do good in the sense that we ought to perfect who we are. Again, a good watch is one that does what it is well. So man is obligated, like a watch should tell time, man is obligated to do all the things that make up who we are. Uh, just like examining a saw, we know it ought to cut. Right? Now, what's important about this is if we just look at one saw, and it happens to be a blunt saw, that's not good enough. That doesn't tell us what it ought to do. So, again, the other error, they say, well, look, there's this one person, they're doing, they're committing murder. No, that doesn't tell us what man ought to do. We have to look at man in all, not just one individual person, but in a more general, universal sense. In my example, we'd have to look at all different saws, not just one example of a broken one, to know what it ought to do. So, God, in the creation of the world, established the eternal law. That even the philosopher Cicero, a pagan, understood. Again, it's amazing. These things that pagans 3,000 years ago knew as obvious, our society thinks, oh, that's crazy. Who could ever believe that? But even these pagans who didn't know Revelation knew these things were obvious. Cicero said, obviously, there's a God who created a law that rules the universe. The eternal law fixes the essence of things, makes things what they are, defines what everything is, defines a dog, is a do what is a dog, what is a human being, and in defining what they are, defines the final ends towards which each thing is declined. We can then, as he said, break apart what man is, what our goals are, what our final end is, by looking at the natural inclinations, the natural laws inclinaciones, as St. Thomas says. Wherever there is a definite nature, so something's different from other things, right, there must be definite activities proper to that nature. The proper activity of every nature is consequent upon that nature. It is therefore certain that man's nature is definite. There must therefore be certain activities that in themselves befit man. And how do we do this? We look at the aspects of man's being, what makes us up as what we are, and we see this hierarchy then that will emerge of activities to our nature. We must break this good down into the specific parts of our essence, to know the different acts that are proper to that essence. The key to properly understanding these natural inclinations is in this hierarchical understanding that our nature builds in a hierarchy. Because this nature includes lower orders of being as well as reaches towards God. So, what do we mean by that? What are we? Well, Aquinas defined, based on Aristotle, men are rational, sentient, living, corporeal substances. Let's break that down. So what are we? We're a substance. We are something. We exist. And we're not just existing like rocks. We're a living substance. So we are a substance which is alive. That's we share in common with everything right, that is, that's real. We are something. We share with all everything that's living, plants and animals, and we're alive. Notice how we're building up. But we're also corporeal. We have a body. So we have a body that moves. We have a body that reproduces itself, right? just like animals. Right? So we share with animals. We're building higher. But then we also are rational. Right? We have an intellect. So unlike animals who can merely recognize things from sense impressions, we can know what they are. We can understand them. We can think about them. We can understand them. 
And so we have a rational nature, which is even higher, which reaches up towards that which is above us, the angels. So from this, we can see what we share with all these other orders of being and define with respect to each one of these levels of who we are that build activities that are proper to those, that that part of our nature is inclined to do something. And this is exactly how St. Thomas develops his list of the primary principles of the natural law. So he starts with a living substance. He says, what is a living substance? Something that is real, that exists, and that is alive. So if it is alive, it's good for it to be alive, and it ought to be alive. And so whatever preserves our existence, keeps us alive, is good, and we should do it. So why should we eat? Why should we sleep? Because they keep us alive. They help us to live. And so that which preserves our life is the first principle we can learn from who we are. Secondly, we are, like animals, corporeal substances. We therefore should reproduce like ourselves. We should carry on our own species. That's good. But, and we're going to jump over some detail we'll come back to, we also have a rational capability. And so we therefore are inclined to know the truth. So if we have the ability to be alive, we should be alive. If we could, if we have a watch, could tell time, it should tell time. Right? And if we have a rational nature, then we are meant for the truth. We are made to know the truth. So we should know the truth. We should learn. And so he builds these primary principles of the natural law from each of these. Now what's important about these is that they are hierarchical. As I said, they relate. Now, here's what's important, because we have to understand hierarchy in the proper sense. Modern ideas have distorted hierarchy. They always think of hierarchy as oppressive, right? That on top punishes what's below, right? Bad bad hierarchy because it's on top, it's got powerful, and people below, things below don't get anything. No. We could sort of think of a pyramid as a narrowing. As you go up the hierarchy, it gets smaller. Well, really, what Aquinas and the church teach about hierarchy is what I envision is more of an upside-down pyramid. As you go up the hierarchy, the smaller thing gets bigger, 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 right? We start as substances like rocks, and then we end up having uh, an intellect which is unbounded. We right? can know great, vast amounts. And so it's really like an inverted pyramid, so that the lower things are included in the higher. It's not that they get smaller, they get bigger. Right? So our nature is bigger than animals, because we have what animals have plus something more. This is important because, unlike modern philosophy we'll talk about, that says, well, there are all these goods, but they're all just unrelated. So you can just pursue this good, that good. Hierarchy means that they are ordered, and the higher the good must include the lower good, and that pursuing the higher good is more perfect. So what do I mean by that? By hierarchy, it means you can't say, well, I'm going to pursue this good, which will destroy the other good, because that doesn't respect this idea of hierarchy. So again, an obvious example of where this people have gotten this wrong. Nazi Germany. They said, well, we want knowledge. We want medical knowledge. We want to learn things. So we're going to experiment on people. And we're going to kill a bunch of people and cut them open. And we're pursuing knowledge. That's the hierarchy, right? They say, well, this is the higher thing to do, the better good. Well, no, you can't do that. Because why? The way you're pursuing knowledge is you're violating the principle on which that rests that life ought to be preserved. So the hierarchy is very important because it means you can never pursue a higher good by destroying a lower good. But it also means you can't pursue a lower good in a way that makes it impossible to progress to the higher good. So again, you can't say, for example, this is the example of the martyr. Well, I need to preserve my life, so the government wants me to deny truth. They want me to lie, say that God doesn't exist, Christ is not God. So because preserving life is good, I'm going to deny the truth to preserve life. Well, no, you can't do that. Because you're pursuing the lower good by destroying or going against the higher good. So that's why hierarchy is very important. The higher good includes the lower good. You have to always preserve life while pursuing truth. And the way you preserve life must not prevent you from reaching the higher or the primary good. This is very, very important understanding of classical natural law. And so this is, again, how Thomas builds his principles. Again, we glossed over a little bit the one about marriage, because we're going to stop and come back to that in a moment in more detail. But 
because of that corporeal nature, the procreation, rearing, and education of children is a good which is a proper good to man. That's one of the things we ought to do. And we will then see as we look at that, that because contraception is a violation both of the lower good of preservation of life, but more importantly, a violation of the higher good, the preservation education of children, it is therefore intrinsically against the natural law. So I need to pause and explain what we mean by intrinsically. There are three types of acts that we can perform. And again, this is basic common sense. So we can do something that is intrinsically good. No matter how we do it, one or what circumstances, as long as we're doing it, it must be good. Because it is perfectly oriented to one of our ends. And again, we've been talking on the natural level, but our, even on the natural level, we need to know about God. Knowing about God is proper to our nature, but we also have a supernatural end, to be united to God, right? which again is more the realm of theology, but is still part of our end. Therefore, to love God or to know about God is always good. You can never say, well, I love God too much, or I shouldn't love God in this circumstance. Right? That makes no sense, because it's by its very nature, by doing it itself, there's no way it can be bad. And so example of that is loving God. There are the opposite of that. There are intrinsically evil actions. And they are actions which are utterly incapable of leading towards a good. They are destructive of a good. So there's no way you can do them in a way that's good. Because the act itself is completely opposite from one of these ends or goods. And so apostasy, so turning away from God. There's no way that that can ever be made good by saying, well, I turned away from God with a good intention. It's just doesn't matter what your intention is, what you're doing is wrong. The killing of the innocent, the intentional killing of the innocent. There's no way it can be oriented to a good. There's no way you can say, well, I'm doing this in a way for a good, because the act itself is against one of the basic goods. Now, many of the actions, however, so there's actions can fall into one of those two categories, but there's a third category, which are actions which in and of themselves, as we mean by intrinsically, in the thing itself, the act itself it's not good or bad. It's neutral. And so to determine a particular time we do the act, we have to know more. So again, intrinsically evil, doesn't matter what your intentions, what the circumstances are, always bad. But some acts can be good or evil depending on the intention and the circumstance. So traveling to Philadelphia. I say, is that good or bad? Well, I don't know. It, it depends. Why are you traveling to Philadelphia? Well, I'm going to speak at the Fatima Conference to meet people. Well, that's good. So going to Philadelphia is good. If I say, well, I'm going to Philadelphia to rob a bank. Well, that's bad. But because why? The circumstances in which I'm going to Philadelphia are bad. My reason for going, my intention is bad. So we always have to distinguish with any act. Is this an act that's intrinsically good, intrinsically evil, or a neutral act? And then we need to ask more questions about the neutral act. Now, like I said, mixing up chemicals. I'm in the lab mixing chemicals. Is that good or bad? Well, I don't know. If I'm mixing them to make a, something to heal someone, well, that's good. If I'm mixing poison so I can go give it to somebody so they'll die, mixing chemicals in that case is bad. That's the category of neutral acts. Again, intrinsically evil acts are acts which are incapable, no matter what the circumstances are, of being oriented to the end of what we are pursuing. Now, we do have to be careful and distinguish. We're speaking objectively about these acts and the circumstances or intentions. There's a different level, which again, is, is we're not going to talk about too much today, of subjective. So even somebody who performs an objective act, it is objectively evil, objectively disoriented. But if the person is, their amount of culpability, their responsibility for performing that act, that does depend on their subjective position. Maybe they've been lied to, they've been told this is a good, and they, they're confused. Again, because the natural law is written on our heart and we can know these things, there's always some level of responsibility when performing an intrinsically evil act. But how responsible somebody is, is, is a different question. Because even if they say, well, I didn't, I didn't understand that contraceptives were, were bad, I was told by my priests that they were okay. Something that happens in our society. That person's Guilt may be very small, right? Because the priest was believable, they didn't know any better. We're not talking about that. That's a different question. Whether somebody's responsible, the act itself is still intrinsically evil, whether the person understood or not. They're very separate questions. It's very 
important. So, these are these key principles. They contradict, as I say, what's called the new natural law that grew up after Vatican II in many ways, but in two important respects. So, people today who say, well, I support natural law, they hold that the natural law is indemonstrable. So it just is. We, we can't know how it is, we don't understand it, and it is not able, the way we just did, to be demonstrated, to explain we have this nature, this is why certain things are good, and it is incommensurable, meaning there's no hierarchy, there's no relation, so pick a good, pursue a good, and this relationship among the goods is not there, that there's not an order, that you can't say I'm preserving my life by denying the truth about God. That's impossible in traditional natural law, but if the goods are incommensurable, well, I'm just pursuing a good. That's my good, and there's a different good. This philosophy has undermined this traditional understanding of natural law. And this writers such as John Finnis and German, the late German Grise forcefully argued against these to support many of the conclusions in the post-Vatican II church. And as uh, even theologian at Notre Dame, Gene Porter, has pointed out, there is more fundamental difference between the new natural law of Grise and Finnis and the scholastic, the traditional conception of the natural law, than cannot be brought out simply by a comparison of relevant texts on the natural law. That is, Grise and Finnis share in the modern view that nature understood in terms of whatever is pre- or non-rational in our being, what we are, stands in contrast to reason. So what we are is totally different from what we think about what we are. We can't, there are no connections. This is implied by their insistence that moral norms must be derived from reason alone, from our just thinking mind, without thinking about who we are. That is from pure rational intuitions that are in no way dependent upon empirical or metaphysical claims about the world. They insist on this point because they are persuaded by Hume, he's the one that invented that naturalist fallacy, argument that moral claims cannot be derived from factual premises. As a result, they are forced to deny the moral relevance of those aspects of our humanity that we share with animals. Even the traditional Catholic prohibition on the use of contraception is interpreted by them as a sin only against life, which represents the same stance of will as present in murder, rather than as a violation of the natural principle of natural law about sexuality and marriage. The scholastics never would interpret reason in such a way. So again, the danger is we may have people who appear to be supporting the church's teaching. Oh yeah, contraception is bad, but for bad reasons. They can confuse us and lead people into error. All right, let's get more specific now that we've laid this groundwork. So marriage and the primary principles of the natural law. St. Thomas teaches that the second principle, primary principle of the natural law, is that marriage is for the purpose of the procreation, rearing, and education of children. Those inclinations toward the procreation, education, rearing of children within an indissoluble society of a man and a woman is a component of what's good for man. And that is why he names this as the second principle and therefore, that which fosters the procreation, rearing, and education of children in an indissoluble union of a man and a woman should be done. That which is directly opposed to it is evil. We can thus define marriage as the human relationship which has as its end the fulfillment of this inclination of human nature. Now, let's look at this a little bit more. What is the act that separates this relationship from other relationships among human beings. So we can delve a little bit more into understanding this in particular. Well, this particular act, which is oriented to this end of procreation, education, and rearing of children, appropriately for centuries, has always been referred to as the marital act, because it's an act whose natural end is the procreation for the education and rearing of children. Now, what is this purpose? Simple observation demonstrates so again, what something is tells us what it ought to do. This act has as its end, its natural function, the bringing into existence of other creatures like those making use of it. Right? No one has ever engaged in the marital act and produced a monkey or a dog. Doesn't happen, right? We know this just again, basic common sense. Say, what does this do? It tells time. What does this act produce? Children like the parents that make use of it. 
And again, this carries across all nature. We don't see lions giving birth to dinosaurs, right? It doesn't happen. So we know what does this act lead to naturally. The very fact of contraception itself proves this truth. Because they, they say, well, we know what this act will do. We have to try to stop it. Right? So they're admitting the natural end of this act, what it tends toward, what it's inclined toward, is the procreation of children. The logical inference is no different, again, from concluding that what's the purpose of inhaling is to breathe. And therefore, anything which stops you from getting oxygen when you're inhaling is frustrating the natural end of that act. It's as simple as that example. Any act which has as its object thwarting the natural end of the act. So if somebody stuffs a pillow over my mouth, the natural end of my trying to breathe is to get oxygen. Directly stopping me from reaching that end is clearly wrong. Because there's no way to say putting a pillow over my mouth isn't... There's ways to make that not prevent you from breathing. No, it's its own purpose. As Casti Kanubi says, but no reason, however grave... So now this is why you're saying it's intrinsically evil. Because Pius XI says no reason, under no circumstances, no matter how grave you might say it is, may be put forward by which anything intrinsically against nature may become conformable to nature and morally good. Since, therefore, the conjugal act, the marital act, is destined primarily, what is its natural end, for the begetting of children, those who, in exercising it deliberately, frustrate its natural power and purpose, sin against nature, and commit a deed which is shameful and intrinsically vicious. Again, confirms what the natural law teaches us. Now, again, it's important to draw a distinction that the Pope actually does in Casti Canubi between those who engage in the act, a marital act, and your children just do not naturally come, maybe because of an illness or age. He says, no, that's not intrinsically wrong. And he says, there's nothing wrong with that, because why? They're engaging in the act, but they are not in any way frustrating the act from reaching its end. And in fact, like Abraham and Sarah, notwithstanding if they're 60 years old, if God works a suspension of the laws of nature and the act is allowed, is not impeded, they're not stopping it in any way. So again, what he's distinguishing is not just because the act is used, again, I may try to breathe, but my lungs are clogged with cancer and I can't get there. That's not my fault. right? That's the cancer's fault. Different from smothering myself. right? So what the Pope is saying, when you intrinsically do something that stops or prevents that is what is intrinsically evil. And again, nor are those, he says in Casti Canubi, considered as acting against nature, who in the married state use their right in the proper manner, although on account of natural reasons, either of time or of certain defects, new life cannot be brought forth. Now, why is that? You say, well, why might they make you, even though they know, well, odds are unlikely that a child we produce, to understand that we need to now look at the secondary purposes of marriage. And again, just like with that, my example of breathing, if I say, well, I have cancer, I'm trying to breathe, I might not be able to, it's okay to still try to breathe, even though you know something may interfere with your ability to breathe. Now, some try to argue that they can use the marital act for another purpose. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But simply the fact that you say, well, I could use this for another purpose, doesn't say that that makes it justified. One can use the ability to inhale to breathe in poison. So again, just because they say, well, you know, I could breathe in poison, but what does that do, what is its end, what is its purpose, doesn't prove that breathing poison is just as good as breathing oxygen. Right? So just because people say, well, you, I can use the marital act for another purpose other than procreation, again, the question is, what's the natural end of the act? What's its primary end? Am I preventing that, is the question. Now, we touched on that there are also, just in that hierarchy, secondary purposes. So, acts may have primary, but also secondary purposes. Those secondary purposes are part of that fuller understanding of the principle of natural law. So, animals share the procreative purpose. So, they have similar acts to produce other animals. Where are we different? Well, our children are born in a way that they are social. They cannot be alone. Actually, it's wonderful. There's a family here with a little eight-week-old baby. So we have sort of a wonderful example here this weekend. Look at this baby. 
If this baby were just born and left by, by themselves, they could not survive, even on a physical level. Our, again, there are animals that can have lay their eggs in the seabed, disappear, the eggs hack, the children swim away. Right? We're not like that. Even on the most basic level, if a baby is born and left alone, the baby will die. Cannot survive, even on the most basic physical level. So that proves that the marital act, the child must be born into a society that will care for the child that is procreated. Now, we are also, though, even some animals are like that. There are some animals that need care. The bird needs the mother for a little period of time in the nest. But we have even a further aspect. We have a rational nature that needs long period of time to develop before the child could be on their own. So again, child at a certain age might be able to feed itself. But we do more than eat, right? We need to think and exercise our will. And again, even as Aristotle understood 2,500 years ago, these are incredible powers that take time to learn how to use them. We need to be taught and instructed how to use our powers of thinking and acting and willing. Even, for example, we know reason. And we talk about a child reaches the age of reason. So for the first seven years of our life, we're not even able to make use of this power at all until we reach the age of reason. And if anybody's had children between the ages of seven and 19, even once they reach the age of reason, they're not really good at using it very well, right? That's why they need parents to teach them how to use their reason, how to form their will. And again, we can know by observing how children grow up They can't just live on their own. They need a stable society that can help them learn to use the powers that they're given. And that's why the principle is not just procreation, but procreation, rearing, and education of children. Now, this has to be done in a stable society of a mother and a father. Why? Because human beings are very unique. Each one is an individual. And again, anyone that's raised children knows the way you raise child number one is going to be different from child number three and four because they're different. They will have different personalities, different tendencies, different weaknesses, and you only know those as time develops. And so the one caring for the child, educating, has to spend long periods of time, years, developing, adjusting how to raise this child as opposed to another child. It's not a a cross, okay, here's how we do it doesn't work. And again, anybody writes a book and says, here's everything you do to raise a child, don't believe it. Every child is different and needs parents that know them well so that they can educate them well. And again, even Aristotle knew these simple truths, that we need to live in society. He said, a human being, or a creature that does not live in a society, does not need society, is either a beast or God. Like they're either below human nature, animals can be solitary, some or their God, who doesn't need us. We are unique. We need this society. He also explained that we need a society of a man and a woman. And this is where a phrase that was a favorite of Hillary Clinton is completely erroneous. She used to go around, remember, it takes a village to raise a child. Wrong. It takes a mother and a father to raise a child. And again, even Aristotle knew this 2,500 years ago. Because there were people who were saying, well, the state, Athens, should take over and raise all the children. I said, no, 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 no. That won't work. Because you need the mother and father who know and care for that child. The state can't care for thousands of children. They'll just treat them all like robots and some sort of brave new world, right? scary novel. He said a child needs to be raised by their parents because they're the only one that will know and care for the child as their own. If a village raises a child... It's just one of the kids. But this is something that is produced out from the parents' love, and they will educate the child better than the village. And so this educational process has to go over a long period of time in a stable relationship where people are not coming and going. Well, this is my father. Next year, it's somebody else. That's not conducive to the goal of education children. And so therefore, the marital act has as a secondary end. By secondary, it's good in and of itself but it is oriented toward that higher end. The secondary end, as the natural law has always taught and the church confirmed, is the support and mutual support of the spouses. So to build, again, to have that long-term relationship, you need to have a closeness, a commitment, and third, third end, 
a remedy against infidelity. So again, you can't have that stable relationship where the parents are working together if they're not faithful to one another. And so again, Aquinas teaches the secondary and third purpose of the marital act is to build that unity, build that connection, that bond between the husband and wife to avoid infidelity. Why? Not just in and of itself, but so that they can form that society that can educate care for the children for their whole lives. And again, this is the whole idea has been inverted. You ask people today, why do you get married? I get married to feel good, to have someone love me, to have a great relationship. Okay, but why? Well, just for that. They've lost the primary purpose. The whole reason for why God created that bond, that help between the spouses, is for their ability to fulfill their obligation to procreate and educate children. And so, this is why these ends of marriage are so important. And contraception violates all of these ends. Why? The first one, as we said, is obvious. It prevents the natural effect of the act by preventing procreation. But it is even disoriented from the second and third end. Why? What did we say that relationship means between a man and a woman? Every form of contraception destroys, distorts, or affects in some negative way some aspect of either the male or female gender. Right? As, yeah, even as the pagan philosophers understood and scientists, that make a child, you need a man and a woman with certain unique characteristics or it doesn't work. But what does contraception do? It distorts either permanently through sterilization or temporarily a biological aspect so that no longer is the act between a complete male and a cleanly female. That's how all contraception works. It's to either alter one or the other. And so it is actually no longer the same act. Because the marital act is an act, as actually Father Rodriguez will speak about in his next conference, between a man and a woman, contraception changes one of them to be not a full man or full woman in a biological sense. And so it distorts that act, doesn't build the relationship, and in fact simulates the marital act rather than performing it. And third, it does not, it actually is an encouragement to infidelity. Again, if you look at the statistics, since 1954 when contraception the Supreme Court said people have a right to the contraceptive. Divorce has skyrocketed. Infidelity has skyrocketed. Why? Because what was a remedy? Again, what kind of said is infidelity is bad, but things that sort of discourage you from doing bad things are good. So what would discourage people who are tempted infidelity? Ooh, might have a child. That would be messy. I'm going to get found out. Again, they're not, you shouldn't be unfaithful or adulterous. But the fact of contraception makes it easier to rationalize your infidelity. Well, nobody will ever know about it because I can prevent its natural effect. And so the presence of contraception is a contributing factor to the rise of adultery and divorce. Again, this is what Finnis and Grise don't say. They say, well, it just prevents life. No, it destroys the very nature of marriage. It destroys the permanent relationship between man and woman. It doesn't make it a total act between a whole man and woman. And it promotes not fidelity, but the presence of contraception promotes infidelity. So we see that a contraceptive act is an act which is intrinsically evil because it is impossible to orient that act towards the ends of that act, the primary and secondary and third end. Now, I mentioned other people say, well, this act could be used for other purposes. What is the primary one, they say? So let's deal with that objection. They say, no, 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 no. The act produces pleasure. And so the end of the marital act is pleasure. And contraception doesn't stop the, that end being attained. Therefore, it's good. Well, the problem with pleasure that, again, even the, the pagan Aristotle, Socrates saw thousands of years ago, is that pleasure is not a sure guide. Sensation, mere feeling, is not a sure guide for what's right or what's wrong or what's good for us. The problem with pleasure is that it can come with a good act, so yes, pleasure comes with the proper use of the marital act, but it can also accompany other things. So it's present in good acts, but in and of itself doesn't tell us that they're good. Right? So how we feel, how the sensations we get, is not a reliable guide. So again, give you a simple example on another level to prove this point. Something that the whole world took as basic for thousands of years. So let's say that I know if I, I want to go to Egypt. I say, well, if I go to Egypt, it's hot there. So when I go to Egypt, I will feel heat. 
Okay, so I get on a plane, and the plane flies me to um, Argentina. No, so this to Ecuador, where it's in the clear. So I get off in Ecuador, and I go, I get off the plane, and I'm like, wow, it's really hot. I'm in Egypt. Well, I'm wrong. I'm totally wrong. The fact that I'm hot and I feel heat doesn't prove I'm in Egypt. Why? Because I could feel heat in Ecuador and in Egypt. So pleasure is like that. Pleasure can come to us in different forms. It's a byproduct of different actions. But in and of itself, it doesn't say, I now know I'm in Egypt. Because it accompanies other ends, other destinations. And so, what looking at it, pleasure is never a guide for whether something is right or wrong. Because it can also, there can be short-lived or temporary pleasure that accompanies bad acts. Now again, against the life principle, I can commit suicide, intrinsically evil act. I can do it in a way that I, there's a poison that has a real sweet-smelling odor. You know, oh, wow, that smells good. I feel pleasure. I'm dead. The feeling of pleasure was no sign that I was smelling something really good. It was a poison that happened to have a sweet odor. So, again, those who say, well, the marital act is oriented to pleasure, no, that doesn't, pleasure is never an end that can tell us what its natural act end is. We have to look at our nature, and we have to look beyond pleasure to see what the ends of the act are. So, having walked through these principles, let's look now, I said that there are two ways of sinning or violating this primary principle of the natural law, that the primary end of marriage is the procreation, education, and rearing of children. So, there are two ways to violate this from two extremes. We've spoken about contraception. So, any act which in and of itself violates or makes impossible or prevents or hinders the natural end of the act, the procreation, education, rearing of children in a stable society of one man and one woman, is intrinsically evil. So, the use of anything that interferes with the act, with that end, is intrinsically evil. However, from the other extreme, what if we say, well, again, this is where this this lack of hierarchy is important. Okay, well, the procreation of children is good, so we want to use things like in vitro fertilization, surrogacy, because they produce children, there's procreation. That is just as wrong as contraception. Why? Because it's saying we want to pursue the procreation of children, but outside of the relationship between the husband and wife committed for an indissoluble union. So in the same way that contraception violates it, these artificial forms of conception the same way. Because they remove the conception of the child from the society which is necessary to its education. And all of these errors come from failing to understand this important relationship between the principles, the ends of marriage. And where did this come from? As I said, this philosophy arose as a result of the new theology of the Second Vatican Council. As Dr. Robert de Mattei writes about the Council, unfortunately, the family morality formulated in the chapter The Dignity of Matrimony and of the Family in Gaudium et Spes would incorporate the suggestion of the innovators rather than those of the defenders of traditional morality. Traditional morality was, again, there are these primary and secondary purposes of marriage. And you can't say, well, I'm just pursuing the relationship, no children, because that is pursuing the secondary end against the primary end. The prophetic criticism, Dr. Mertei says, of the idea of the innovators made by Cardinal Ruffini at the Council has come to pass in our time. Cardinal Ruffini, here he found, says, It seems the concept of matrimony as we have understood it until now dogmatically and morally has to change, at least in practice. But is it possible that the church was mistaken until now and that adaptation to today's societies forces us to declare that what was always held to be immoral is now in keeping with morality? By disturbing this hierarchy of ends, which subordinates the mutual support of the spouses to the primary end. Meaning you can't say I'm pursuing the relationship without the primary end. You can't invert those. You can never pursue the secondary end that frustrates the primary. Gaudium et Spes, which does this, cleared the way for a definition of marriage primarily as the mutual support and pleasure of the spouses. The seeds of the decisions to allow 
and to promote contraception are in either destroying this hierarchy, where Gaudium says suggests the mutual support of the spouses is primary, procreation secondary, or at a minimum they're equal. So if they're equal, if you pursue one without the other, that's okay. Has led to the widespread acceptance of contraception, not as an intrinsic evil, but as something that can be good. Now, we've spoken about intrinsically evil and any artificial contraception that does this. However, remember that third category. We talked about that category that are acts which are not good or evil in and of themselves, but depend on the intention and the circumstance. Well, here's the problem and one of the problems that is a virus in Humanae Vitae. The so-called, and again, I, the, the term that's commonly used is natural family planning, a term which I don't like to use because in and of itself it, it gives away the argument because it suggests that family planning is okay. What the church traditionally called periodic abstinence is what we're talking about. So what is the relationship between periodic abstinence, a mutual agreement of the spouses to refrain from the use of that to which they have a right, the marital act, for some period of time? Now, is this an intrinsically good or evil action? It's neither. Right? It's not intrinsically evil to not partake of the marital act. Right? That would obviously, it's absurd to say that, because that would mean our Lord committed an evil, because he never consummated a marital act. So we know that refraining from chastity, the abstention from marital relation, is not intrinsically evil. It will depend, therefore, on the circumstance. In the circumstance of a professed religious, abstinence from the marital act is obviously a good, because they have vowed not to, to partake of it. In the context of marriage, however, what about this, this abstinence? Well, the church traditionally taught, as Pius XI and Pius XII in his address to midwives, that periodic abstinence might be good or might be evil, depending on the circumstance and the intention. Why? Because unlike the religious who vows, the husband and wife have committed to marriage, which has the end of the procreation and rearing of children. And so if periodic abstinence is with the intention of not fulfilling that duty, so we don't want to have children, or we only want to have as many children as we want, then it would be with a bad intention and under bad circumstances. So again, unlike artificial contraception, we can't say, well, husband and wives abstaining for any period is always wrong. Pope Pius XII, in his address to midwives, explains the traditional teaching uh, follows. Nevertheless, the moral lawfulness of such conduct of husband and wife should be affirmed or denied. So again, affirmed or denied means it can be wrong to say we're going to abstain from the marital act. According to their intention to observe constantly those periods is or is not based on sufficiently morally sure motives. And he went on to explain these grave motives such as which you know do arise from medical, health, or economic circumstances as indications may might, you know, may exempt husband and wife from the obligatory positive debt for a period of time. It follows that the observance of natural periods of sterility may be lawful from the moral point of view if it is lawful in the conditions and in the intention. So again, if the wife is ill, is uh, in very precarious health, then for a period of time, for only so long as those grave circumstances exist, it would be morally permissible, not required, morally permissible to abstain for that period, as long as those grave circumstances exist. And again, he uses the term grave. It's not just, ah, you know, I'm not getting a lot of sleep, kids are kind of loud, I need a break. That's not grave, in his explanation. But what has happened in the church since the time of Pius XII and to society? This issue of periodic abstinence has become viewed as, as long as it's not artificial contraception, it must be good. Totally under throwing out the idea of the circumstances. It's like saying, mixing chemicals is always good no matter what, and not asking the circumstances or the intention. 
So let me give just an example to show how this is sinned against the natural law, created vice against the natural law, and being propagated. I know when my wife and I went through so-called marriage preparation in the post-conciliar church, that I know is still true today, what do most places that do it? Teach couples how to use again what they call natural family planning, periodic abstinence. Now think about that. The primary end of marriage is to have children. That's the purpose. You might get married and find out you have a grave reason at some point to have to do this, but these are people who are not married yet. Why would you need to teach people how to do something unless they have a grave reason? And if they have a grave reason for not having children, why are they getting married in the first place? It makes no sense. Why? Because Gaudi Mitzvah inverted these. No, 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 the primary purpose of marriage is to have a good marriage and feel good. You have children, that's optional. So you can justify teaching natural family planning to people who are not married yet if you don't understand that primary purpose. If they have a grave reason for not having children, they're not ready to get married. It's simple. Now, again, maybe they will be. Maybe they, what if they have no job, no money? So we need, we need to know how to abstain so that we don't have children because we can't afford them. Well, then you're not ready to get married is the answer, right? You need to wait till you have a job if you already have a grave reason and that's what's implied by teaching people who are not yet married about so-called natural family planning. Why? Because the change of these primary and secondary ends has occurred and a contraceptive mentality has taken hold. And therefore, the use of periodic abstinence has been dropped from the analysis of the circumstance or the intention that Pius XII made very, very clear that there must be a grave reason. Again, that probably is the more controversial part of the, uh, the lecture. I, I've spoken to that. Some people get very, very upset. Well, at least it's not contraception. It's much better. Well, that's like saying, well, at least he only tortured him and didn't kill him. Well, if you're doing something wrong, it's wrong. The fact that you could be doing it worse, well, we're, yeah, they're contraceptive. They've got married for 30 years and never had children because they, they always use periodic abstinence to prevent it. Did they have a great reason their whole marriage? No. Well, but at least they didn't use artificial contraception. Well, that's not an answer. Again, we can violate the natural law by an intrinsically evil act or by an act which in and of itself is neutral for under circumstances which are make it wrong, no great reason, or with the wrong intention. We just want to have expensive vacations and don't want more than we can. And sadly, that is the error that has permeated the maybe 1% of Catholics that don't use contraception. Again, the statistics show Catholic Church, that members of the Catholic Church are just like society. Over 95% use artificial contraception. The sliver who don't tend to have the same mentality about natural family, what they call natural family planning. Unfortunately, as I said, and we don't have time to go into this because we're just about to wrap up, but this error finds its way subtly into humani vitae. Why is that? Because humani vitae, in its proper rejection of artificial contraception, talks about the legitimate regulation of birth through other means. So, Paul VI speaks about the problem with contraception is not that it violates the primary and secondary ends, but that it is an illicit means to the end of regulating controlling birth. You see that switch? Instead of saying artificial contraception is an illicit means, even using periodic absence is illicit, if it's for this purpose, he talks about artificial contraception is non intrinsically evil to him. He just says it's just a means that you could use other means that are good to get to the same end. Complete inversion of the primary and secondary purpose that the church had always, always taught. And just wrap up with a final uh, note that uh, Cardinal Ottaviani at the council saw this coming and he commented on this, this change and said that this change in inverting the ends was so contrary to Catholic teaching, to the way, to the way his, he was raised in his family that always saw the fruits of a good marriage to be that openness to large families and to as many children as God in his wisdom chose. And he foresaw this in the 1960s and we'd end up today where not only is artificial contraception accepted, 
but the mentality, the intention, and the circumstances for the limited use of periodic abstinence in a moral way would become widespread. And so, as Our Lady predicted, uh, Russia has spread her errors. The only way to turn those errors back is to return to the fullness of these truths to make sure we teach our children them, that we spread them through society to push back those errors. Thank you for We hope you have enjoyed this presentation brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. We invite you to visit our website, www.fatima.org. Immaculate Heart of Mary, Ora Pronobis.